Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. At Beth Emanuel, we are proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. First of all, I apologize for the quality of this audio. My regular microphone was not working, um, but I wanted to make sure to get this to you as soon as possible. This is a Shabbat unlike any other. Israeli rabbis have told Jewish citizens to keep their phones on and to answer them when someone calls. Rav Herschel Schachter uh, said that it would even be correct to recite the prayer of Vinu Malkenu this Shabbos, our father, our king. We don't even say that prayer on Yom Kippur if it happens to land on Shabbat, except at Ne'ilah. That's the most desperate time at the end of Yom Kippur. But in this wartime situation, it's as though we're constantly at that desperate moment. And I, I don't know what it means, but I, but when I deliver this uh, message tomorrow morning on Shabbat, the United States will be graced with a, a total solar eclipse. The very day when we read about the great luminaries, th- this decade began with dramatic signs that the kingdom is near and it's, it's only seeming more and more imminent. Now, I hate to, to speak about such things on Shabbos, but the news headlines this week seem to have come right out of the Tochacha. That's Moses' warning about the terrors that would befall his people at the end of days. I'll admit that as we read those words um, in Deuteronomy a few weeks ago, I, I felt twinges of doubt that such a grotesque situation could even be possible in the modern era. But we've seen how dark and depraved humans can be We've also seen shining examples of heroism and generosity and self-sacrifice and an unprecedented level of unity. The duality of humanity is on full display. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul taught that if one part of the body suffers, all the parts suffer with it. The Rambam says in his Laws of Repentance that a Jewish person who does not take part in the hardships the community is facing does not have a portion in the world to come. We feel this pain. If you're numb to it, you need to evaluate your connection to the body. The Israeli military and government and people have a a long, arduous task ahead to restore security and achieve peace. There are wounded people to care for, homes to rebuild, orphans to raise, and here across the ocean we find ourselves engaged in battles of public opinion, knowing that The moment of moral clarity our society experienced last week has already begun to evaporate. Yet, it's it's important for us to to realize that none of this is new. We know from history that, that when Yeshua was a small boy and his family made the pilgrimage from Nazareth to Galilee and the holy city of, uh, to the holy city of Jerusalem for Passover, its gates were lined with Roman crosses bearing the corpses of crucified Jews. And this violent scene encapsulates the Israel that Yeshua knew his his whole life. It's been repeated in every generation throughout Jewish history. This unceasing pattern should lead us to an essential realization. Even if our wildest dreams were to come true in the current struggle, if Hamas were to, to surrender unconditionally today, if our hostages were rescued, if, if its leadership were dismantled, 
this would not be the end. Because within a short time, another enemy, another oppressor, more violent, more sadistic, more satanic, would take their place. Because if you think the problem is Hamas, or Palestinians, or Iran, or Arabs, or Muslims, or your, your political opponents, you are missing the big picture. Our master taught us that there is only one remedy for the sickness that plagues our world. Seek first the kingdom of God. We need Mashiach now. Don't get me wrong. We live in the real world. We have to rescue hostages. We have to shoot down incoming missiles. We even have to mobilize politically when necessary. But we cannot rely on those avenues to solve the bigger problem. The world needs redemption. The world needs Yeshua, our King Messiah. Israelis need the kingdom. Americans need the kingdom. Palestinians need the kingdom. And this realization draws attention to the importance of the path that we are forging right now at Beth Emmanuel and in the Messianic Jewish world. Our Master Yeshua taught us how to get from here to there. As Hashem told the prophet Zechariah, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. As you may recall, we've been slowly making our way through a list found in 2 Peter chapter 1, a list of steps that he says leads us to the entrance to the eternal kingdom. And as I, as I pondered this list, I, I noticed a certain pattern that has held true, so far at least, that the midot, the, the, the attributes that Shimon Bar Yona listed for us, are each a hint of the messianic kingdom. His starting point is faith. The awareness that, that God not only exists, but is in, intimately involved in our world, that he's a God who intervenes and redeems. This faith is a foretaste of the Messianic era. How tangible and acute will this awareness be for everyone when the kingdom is revealed? And so, he tells us to supplement our faith with virtue. And what's virtue? Well, in our early dis earlier discussion, I, I showed that this term describes the concept of a good heart. Again, the Torah promises that a component of the redemption will be the circumcision of the heart, and that he will remove the stony heart from within us and give us a heart of flesh, and that he will write the Torah on our hearts. And then we learned about knowledge, knowing God. And in the Messianic future, we will be subsumed in the knowledge of God like the water of the sea. The steps on Peter's list seem to be preparing us for future realities, for experiences that will be common in the Messianic kingdom. So, today I'd like to focus on the next attribute, the next breadcrumb leading us to the gates to the kingdom. Shimon Kepha told us to supplement our knowledge with self-control. Now, what comes to mind when I say self-control? Maybe it means uh, not eating the whole sharing size bag of M&Ms in one sitting. Uh, or perhaps it means stopping after one episode and not binge-watching a whole season of some TV show. Okay, sure, those, those are some examples of self-control. But is self-control really a foretaste of the Messianic Kingdom? And yes, it's an amazing, it's an amazing foretaste, and I will show you what I mean. It will help if we put the term self-control in the language of, of the sages. The Hebrew term for self-control is kibush hayetzer, which can be literally translated as 
conquering the inclination. In Pirkei Avot, Ben Zoma taught, who is mighty? In other words, who is truly strong? One who conquers his inclination, as it says in Proverbs 16, 32. One who is slow to anger is better than a mighty man, and one who rules over his spirit is better than the conqueror of a city. So, what is this yetzer or, or, or inclination? Well, humans are a, a strange hybrid among God's creatures. We have two inclinations. Um, we've got two impulses, two drives within us. One is a drive to connect with Hashem, to fulfill His will. The other drive pulls us down to this earth, to self-determination, to gratification. Now, where did these two drives come from? Well, well, this week's Parsha gives us a great opportunity to discover how it all began in the beginning. So, let's consider how we humans were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.7 describes how God formed an Adam out of the ground. It says, Then Hashem, God, formed the man, Adam, of dust from the ground, the Adama, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man, the Adam, became a living creature. Okay, so we often translate Adam as man or person, but this fails to capture the connection to the word Adama, which means dirt. So, going forward, I'm going to translate Adam as dirtling. So, a few verses later, in verse 17, God prohibits the dirtling from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we might expect to see more discussion about, about this tree, but suddenly the narrative diverts to a new topic. In verse 18, it's immediately recognized that the dirtling needs a partner. So, in verse 19, God forms animals out of the ground. And I want to draw your attention to how similar this verse is to verse 7 that des described the formation of humans. It says, now out of the ground, Adama, Hashem had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was, his, that was its name. So, both Man and beasts are formed out of the ground, and both are called a nefesh chaya, a living creature. In the next verse, the dirtling proceeds to name all the livestock and birds and every beast of the field. Now, pay attention to this term, chayat ha-sadeh, beast of the field. So, what does the dirtling do? He swipes left on each one, finding no suitable partner. And this raises the question, didn't Hashem already know that the dirtling would not find a partner among the beasts of the field? What was the, the whole point of this exercise? But the search for a partner continues with verse 21. God puts the dirtling to sleep and removes one of his structural components. Of course, some translations say a rib, but the term is more often used in an architectural context. So, in verse 22, instead of saying that God formed the woman, like it says about man and animals, it tells us that God constructed or built the woman and brought her to the dirtling. She becomes the first creature not to be formed from dirt. 
The uh, in, in verse 25, it tells us that the two are naked, arumim, a word that means exposed or unveiled. And in the next verse, 3.1, the snake is introduced and is called the most clever of every beast of the field, of every chayat hasadeh. The, the word for the snake's sneaky cleverness is, is the same word used before to mean naked. Now, why does the Torah intentionally describe the snake in the same way as the humans? What connection is it drawing? And, and also note how the snake is called Hayat Hasadeh, a, a beast of the field, alluding back to the animals that were rejected as Adam's partners. Now, both in, in Jewish and Christian interpretation, the snake is more than just a snake. We identify it as the as an embodiment of the Satan or of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. But let's set that aside for a moment. The Torah doesn't tell us that the Satan took the form of a snake. I mean, in real time, within the narrative, so far we have no hint that this is anything but a snake, an animal, a beast of the field. But the snake proceeds to tempt the woman, who, by the way, has no name yet. And he promises that eating from the tree will cause their eyes to be open and make them like God. From a contextual perspective that, okay, this is just a snake and nothing more. This is strange. Why would a snake do such a thing? What does it stand to gain from the fall of man? And as we know, uh, the, the dirtling and the woman eat from the tree and they're punished. The snake is cursed to crawl on its belly. And, and you know, I, I always thought it was kind of unfair to punish snakes for this. I mean, if it was really just a satan in disguise who doesn't have a bodily form at all and doesn't actually suffer from the fact that snakes crawl on the ground. But, but you know, it's interesting. It implies that snakes at one point had limbs, that they were more human-like than they are now. So, we've got to ask, what is the nature of these specific punishments? How do they address the problem of the first sin? Now, finally, once the dust has settled, uh, Dirtling finally gives the woman a name, and her name is Chava, which is a variation on Chaya, the word that means beast. Why does it take until now for Hava to receive her name? And of all the names, why should she be called something that is akin to beast? Now, I once read a compelling interpretation of this story by Rabbi Ari Lam. Uh, the story of the snake addresses a central question. Where do dirtlings like us fit into the hierarchy of creation? We're made in the image of God. So, are we God-like beings? But we're also formed from the ground, so are we ultimately just another species of animal? Now, Hashem presented Adam with each of the animals as partners to prove to him that even though he is ultimately a beast formed from the dirt just as they are, he's also uniquely made in the image of God and, and so transcends their category. Now, the snake comes as a representative, as a spokesman for the rejected partners. As it seems, the snake took personal offense to this rejection and the notion that man is on another level than the rest of the animals. Who do these hairless monkeys think they are? They think they're special? They think they're gods? I'll take them down a notch. 
So the snake's tactic was to play into their insecurities, to trick them into debasing themselves. Rabbi Lamb uh, explains that God's punishments on humanity reinforce the boundary between man and God. They remind Adam and Chava that they're ultimately from the ground, a part of the natural world. And when God, when when it, when Adam gave his his wife the name Chava, he was conceding that he and his partner are both beasts made from dirt. And yet, we're not mere animals. The punishment on the snake reinforced this distinction. We're, we are uniquely created in the image of God, bearing his likeness. As the Torah tells us, God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, the neshama. Humans are a strange hybrid creature, combining two natures in one. We have our flesh, a physical body with its own physical soul, like the other animals. On the other hand, we have the spirit, the neshama, the, the breath of God, and his image in us. In addition to those two natures or components to our makeup, we also have two drives, two forces that pull us in, in those opposing directions. We have the yetzer hatov, which pulls us in the direction of our neshama, in the direction of unity with God. And then we have the yetzer hara, the, the impulse that invites us to give in to our animal instincts and desires. So, to reiterate, we have two components, flesh and spirit, and we also have two impulses in our hearts pulling us in two directions, the yetzer hara and the yetzer hatov. Now, there is a hidden hint about this in the verses that describe the formation of man and animals in, uh, in verse 2-7 and 2-19. Both verses say that the Lord God formed from the ground, and the word for formed in both verses is, is uh, vayitzer. But in the verse that describes the, the formation of man, it's spelled with a superfluous letter yod, with two yods, and, and those two yods imply that unlike the animals, where it's only spelled with one yod, man has two yitzarim, two inclinations, one inclination toward earth and one toward heaven. From this perspective, it makes sense why the snake is seen to represent the yetzer hara or the satan. The snake wants us to fail at our mission to bear the image of God in the physical world. It seeks to, to, to prove that we're unworthy of it. It's, it's calling us to join it, to partner with it, to throw in the towel and completely revert to the level of an animal. Jewish interpretation tells us that the Yetzir Hara is no longer the literal animal kingdom or a snake beckoning us to descend to their level. But the animal is now embedded within us. It's constantly tempting us to forget who we really are. But why do we even have a Yetzir Hara? The Midrash tells us a strange thing about it. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, do you know how to say good in Hebrew? It's tov. Tov. How do you say very good? Tov me'od. In order, it's actually good, very. Tov is good. Me'od is very. So, tov me'od. Very good. So, in Kohelet Rabbah, in the, in the Midrash, Nehemiah, son of 
uh, Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman tells us that, that the verse, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was Tov Me'od, is talking about Adam. Tov is talking about the Yetzer HaTov, our, our good inclination. Me'od is talking about the evil inclination. Well, the Midrash then asks, how can the evil inclination be called very good? By definition, it's evil. It's not good. But uh, he responds, the lesson teaches us that if it were not for the Yetzer Hara, the, the evil inclination, humans would not build houses, we would not get married, we would not have children. And as proof, he, he cites Ecclesiastes 4.4, which I'll read from the complete Jewish Bible since I like how it comes across. It says, I realized that all effort and achievement stem from one person's envy of another. So from this from this midrash, we we see that although the Yetzirah can lead us to do evil, the Yetzirah itself is is not evil. It's an essential part of our mission as humans. It causes us to care about our life as an individual physical organism. It makes us seek nourishment and, and safety and reproduction. It gives us a sense of individuality and the the illusion of independent self-existence. And this is what makes space for free will. For free choice to exist, the potential for evil must also exist. But why free will? Well, without free will, we can't be rewarded for our good choices. God wants not just to give us His goodness, He wants to reward us for choosing goodness. Good can be good on its own, but without the potential for evil, there is no such thing as very good. God, every, everything God created, he called good, but it was only with the creation of man who has the potential for evil that something could be called very good. An angel is good. It cannot be very good. An angel cannot grow or develop. Growing through struggle is the special task of humanity. And this is why God created the Yetzirah. It exists because he wants it to exist. It turns Tov into Tov Me'od. Now, if the Yetzirah is the Me'od to our Tov, then why should we want to conquer it? Well, well, keep in mind that our sages never told us to destroy or eliminate the Yetzirah. We're only called to conquer it. Conquering means taking control. It means ruling, mastering. We subjugate it, using its powerful strength to accomplish our purposes. In the Shema, uh, which our master called the greatest commandment, M Moshe commanded us, love Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Sifre and, and the Mishnah ask, why does it say with all your heart, not just with your heart? The answer that with all your heart means with both inclinations inside your heart. You should love God with your good inclination and your evil inclination. Rashi points out that this is hinted at by the, the word for heart, which is spelled in this verse with two baits instead of one. Levav and not just lev. The letter bait represents a house, a container, a chamber, and the chambers of the heart correspond to the inclinations of man. So, if loving God with all your heart means loving Him with both inclinations, then what does it mean to love God with all your soul? 
The sages answer, well, to love God, even if he takes your soul, even if it costs your life. And what if it? what does it mean then to love God with all your might? It means uh, with all your mammon, with all your money. But wait a second, they ask, what need is there to say anything about money once you've already given up your soul? But the answer is that there are some who value their money even more than their own life. But I, I see something even deeper here. To love Hashem with your soul is to say, I don't care about my life. I only want you. I am nothing. And, and this is the kind of love that comes from the Yetzer Hatov, from the Neshama. But to use your money and your resources in, in honor of Hashem, this is what it means to enlist your Yetzer Hara in the love and service of God. And, and what is the word here in this verse for might? Love Hashem with your God with all of your me'od, with all your very, with the thing that turns tov into tov me'od. We don't want to eliminate the Yetzirah, we just need to conquer it. Just as an animal can be domesticated and its power harnessed to perform productive tasks beyond the physical strength of man, the Yetzirah, when properly mastered, can propel your service of God. And don't, don't get me wrong, the Yetzirah is an enemy. Your struggle with the Yetzirah will never end, and it only gets harder as you progress. You have to constantly be on guard, and as soon as you're convinced you have defeated it, it has certainly triumphed. Untamed and uncaged, it is a wild beast. It is dangerous. It wants to kill you. It wants to reduce you to an animal and return you to the dust. And it tries to accomplish this at every corner and every possibility from the moment you wake up in the morning and hit the snooze button. I heard a story about the Chofetz Chaim, who had a rough time getting out of bed one cold morning. The Yetzirah came to him and said, you should give yourself a break. It's cold. You need your sleep. Stay in bed. You're an old man. And at that moment, the Chofetz Chaim jumped out of bed and said, I might be old, Yetzirah, but you are even older, and you have no trouble getting up early. <laughs> this teaches one critical primary strategy when it comes to defeating the Yetzahara to recognize its voice. If you can begin to discern who it is that is giving you this advice, suddenly the path becomes clear. The voice of the Yetzahara is simply the Torah in backwards speak. In a backhanded way, it testifies to the truth of the Torah. And not only that, but it reveals your specific curriculum and the area of Torah for you to improve. Thus, by correctly identifying the voice of the Yetzirah, you gain an incredible strategic advantage. It's like, it's like military intelligence that has deciphered the enemy's secret code, giving it access to all their plans and strategies. So, our, our first... Uh, strategy for conquering the Yetzirah is to identify its voice. And, you know, and the next strategy I can offer you is to show it who's boss. You know, it, now in Judaism, we do not practice a strict asceticism. You know, that's self-denial. In our tradition, the world was created for humans to enjoy. 
Nonetheless, it's important to exercise limits. Of course, you know, if something's a sin, we, we, we must outright forbid it. But there are permissible behaviors that still strengthen our yetsuhara. By enforcing limits around those behaviors, it, it helps us to gain overall control. You know, it's not a sin to eat, but make it a practice to limit what and, and how much and when you eat. By doing so, you exercise authority over your yetsuhara. Sometimes you might even fast for, uh, for spiritual and repentance reasons. Likewise, it's not a sin to sleep, but make it a practice to control when and how much you sleep. It's not a sin to speak, but even setting uh, Lashonhara, evil speech, aside, limiting permitted speech can help you gain control over your Yetzahara. Again, I'm not, I'm not talking about severe deprivation, but boundaries. Give it some thought. And I'm sure you can identify with, with a, a variety. You can identify a variety of behaviors in your life that are technically permissible, but gratify the Yetzirah. By establishing limits, you can get the upper hand. Psalm 4, uh, verse 5, which is verse 4 in Christian Bible, says this. says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent, Selah. In the Gemara, um, the Rabbi Levi Barhama recites Rabbi Shimon uh, ben Lakish, um, and he you, uses this verse as a prescription for conquering the Yetzer Hara. Be angry and do not sin means you have to constantly rile up your Yetzer Hatov against your Yetzer Hara. Never stop struggling. Stay vigilant and fierce against it. But he advises that if we start to follow, falter on that, continue with what the verse says next. Ponder in your heart. And this refers to studying Torah. Your Yetzer Hara putting up a fight, drag him into the study hall. Force him to listen to some Torah lessons. In fact, you know what? Why wait? Keep the Torah in front of your face at all times. Make it a part of your daily routine. And when I say Torah, I don't just mean reading the Parsha. Prophets, writings, Gospels, Epistles, Midrash, Halacha, Musar. I don't really care. It's all Torah. It's, and it's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Ponder these things in your heart. Confront your Yetzirah with these truths at all times. Okay, still having trouble? The rabbis uh, advise us to look at what the verse says next. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds. The phrase on your beds alludes to the words, the words in our mouths when we lie down and when we rise up. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. If the Yetzirah is still bearing down on you, say the Shema. The sages refer to saying the Shema as accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. It's our pledge of allegiance, declaring our willing subjugation to God's yoke, to his rule over us. It's our acceptance of the consequences of sin and righteousness. So cry out to God in prayer. Ask him for help. Tell him out loud that the Yetzirah is harassing you, and declare with the Shema your utter dedication to Hashem. But if this doesn't work, the verse, this verse offers us one more strategy. It says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds 
and be silent, Selah. Be silent and remember the day of your death. Your Yetzirah will be defeated. The only question is, will it drag your Nishama down with it? Remember that you will die and you will be forced to give an account for your deeds. And this sobering realization can give you the leverage that you need to defeat the Yetzirah. So, speaking of the future, the Talmud and the Midrashim have some strange things to say about the Yetzahara and its ultimate destiny. You know, uh, Zechariah 12.10 is the famous verse that says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the ha- inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look up on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. The sages of the Gemara disagree who it is that they're mourning about at the time of redemption. According to to one opinion, this is the Messiah, son of Joseph, who is killed. Well, (laughs) we would certainly favor this reading. But uh, the other opinion says that at the time of the redemption, God will slaughter the Yetzirah. Gemara objects, well, why would people mourn the death of the Yetzirah? They should throw a party. Rabbi Yehuda answers, at the, at the time that the Yetzirah is slaughtered, it will manifest itself and, and, and appear to the righteous and the wicked differently. The righteous will see it as a towering mountain, and then, and then we will weep and say, how were we able to overcome such an enormous obstacle and to the uh, the wicked, the Yetzirah, will appear as a strand of hair, and they will weep and say, how were we unable to overcome such a tiny strand? Now, keep in mind that we don't have to inter- choose one interpretation of the or other of this specific verse. The, the point that the rabbis are making is that the Messiah himself will vanquish the, the Yetzirah in the Messianic era. How so? I mean, it will still be possible to sin in the Messianic era. Uh, people will still have children and eat and build houses. If the Yetzirah is what causes us to do these things, how can we say that it's slaughtered? Well, it's it's not, again, it's not that the Yetzirah will be eliminate, eliminated at that point, but it will be fully subjugated. God will be revealed openly. Truth and righteousness will be obvious. It will no longer be a struggle because righteousness will no longer be a struggle. It it will also no longer come with a reward. With this perspective, we can see how perfectly the trait of self-control, conquering the inclination, envisions the Messianic era. At that time, the Yetzirah will have no power over us. Today we're facing a war. Let's always remember that the war we are waging is in our hearts. The, the, the sages teach us that when the Torah says, Ki milchama, when you go to war against your enemy, this is teaching us about defeating the Yetzirah. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The world needs Yeshua. The world needs King Messiah. And until that time comes, we should not be shocked to learn that this world is broken. Keep fighting the battle in your heart and keep following the path to the kingdom.
Shabbat Shalom. Find rest for your soul.